Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest today is Marty Wolf, a baby boomer born in the Bronx. Marty spent a decade based out of Boulder during the Cultural Revolution of the late 60s and 70s. He created some of the very first psychedelic light shows and helped draw up the blueprint for the modern concert industry with the major artists he helped to the stage. He has traveled the world as a concert producer and lighting and stage designer. Welcome, Marty. Thanks, G. You briefly studied photography and design in your native New York, a self-described Bronx hustler, before leaving in 1968. What brought you to Boulder? Sort of the quest to end up going to the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco with my then-girlfriend who became my wife. We headed that way and stopped in Boulder on the way for 10 years. That's the <laughs> short story. Looking back at this time, the late 60s to the late 70s when I was in Colorado, what a rich, full life I've had. And a lot of it was that seminal period of national bands coming to Colorado, the Colorado Creative Center that this was for so many people from the East Coast and all over. What a powerful thing Boulder especially was. When you arrived in Boulder, you met a gentleman named Kit Thomas, who kind of gave you your first glimpse at what concert promotion entailed. He was working at an advertising agency and I needed a job. He was doing a concert at a club in Fort Collins, and I didn't know anything about that sort of thing. I got to observe him take a band called The Beast, a local band with Kenny Passarelli on bass, book the band into a club in Fort Collins and make a deal with the club. I think they got the bar. He made a deal with the band. He got some of the money from the door. They got some of the money from the door. He sold tickets. He promoted the event. And I realized, this is interesting. I could do this. I had done various things in Boulder. I was on a scaffold in the middle of winter with a big wire brush on a power tool, blasting excess cement off bricks. That worked for about 15 minutes. And then I was putting telephone poles in the middle of the winter up in the mountains where their helicopter would come and drop a telephone pole and we'd be sticking pikes in the telephone pole. And that worked for maybe 20 minutes. Lucy rolled the VW bus. We were living up the St. Vrain Canyon in a little cabin. And I found myself with no money, and I literally stood on the side of a mountain and had what I refer to as a financial, spiritual experience. When you have nothing, you have nothing to lose moment and a what the F am I going to do moment at the same time. And I looked down on the lights of Boulder, and I literally made a decision in my mind to go down into the world, which those lights represented, and make my way. And I've never looked back. There's something about these mountains, this part of the world, for me, that's just awesome. I hope you feel that. And I began getting involved with little bits and pieces of music. And then something magic happened. A young man named Pat Steimer was elected president of the student body at the University of Colorado. This was late 68 or early 69. And he had the budget, basically, to do music. He approached someone in the group named Alan Armstrong in that little Boulder hippie family. Alan said, Marty, why don't you take care of the student body concert thing? And I was, by default, inserted into the role of being Pat Steimer's go-to guy for the concert series. And I went, wow, this is great. And he also had a budget for a light show, which I helped create, which was a very, very huge part of my life as well. I was a young photographer as a teenager, loved light, shape, and color. 
still do. So a lot of things came together there. And in order to do concerts at the University of Colorado, you had to affiliate with a student group. It was very natural for me to go to SDS and say, hey, would you like to take 10% of the money in return for an affiliation? Basically, I took 10%, they took 10%, the band got everything else. And I called this band who had just formed and said, hey, I know you just put this band together. I'd like to promote your first concert. I want to create a series called the Ball for Peace series or the Balls for Peace. I thought that was a great double entendre for what was happening in the day because there was a lot of all of that going around, the balling, the peace, all of that. The band said, yeah, great. And that band was Zephyr. So my first promotion as a concert promoter and their first live gig, I believe, ever was that February 21st, 1969, UMC Glenn Miller Ballroom performance. With a young guitar player named Tommy Bolin. He was 17, and he was totally obsessed with David Bowie and a lot of other things that were going on, and I used to hang out with him. He actually asked me to be his roadie, and that also lasted about 20 seconds because he said, give me a drink, and I said, you got to be kidding, and that was over. It was a very short-lived experience for both of us, but I loved him. You did psychedelic light shows on that $4,000 budget. And this is before computerized very lights. This is ground zero of oil and water and glass slides on an overhead projector. Yes, this was the beginning of me realizing that I had one foot in the community of creativity and one foot in the community of business and how to make money. The light show did not make its debut until the fifth Ball for Peace. And I want to wind up to that. The first one was Zephyr. I believe the second one was a band called Slum Gully, and these were all in the UMC ballroom in Boulder with that big black and white picture of Glenn Miller looking down. And the third one, I believe, was John Mayall with the Blues Breakers featuring... Uh, Hotshot guitarist, Mick Taylor. Yeah, Mick Taylor was going to go on and be the Rolling Stones guitarist eventually. Mick Taylor was also, I think, 17 at that time. So here's two unbelievable 17-year-olds just ripping it on Les Paul guitars. Conal Implosion was one of the first five. And then the fifth ball for peace was the Grateful Dead in the UMC ballroom with Owsley on that stage and the picture of Glenn Miller. And we launched our light show. It was April 13th, 1969. Tickets were $2.50 in advance, $3.50 at the door. And essentially, if you didn't have money, we'd just let you in because we didn't care. about 2,000 people in a 1,200-seater. There was probably 10 to 12 gallon jugs of apple cider with really, really good LSD in it, and that room was lit up. When the house lights went on for intermission, it was 1,000 people on a terror trip immediately, looking around going, where am I? What, what happened? Where am I? It was unbelievable. <laughs> and it was a memorable night. Owsley came in and rewired the building. To prepare for the light show, we used these glass dishes, these big concave glass dishes into which you would put food coloring and oil. Depending how much you put in on which side, you could kind of keep everything separate. And then you would need a, a clock face. And then you'd put another clock face on top of it and you'd start pushing down on the clock face. This whole thing is sitting on what's called an overhead projector. So light is blasting up through the clock faces 
into a right angle lens that projects it out. It's literally light being projected, the light's blasting through all this liquid, and you're moving and you're grooving and you're doing one on top of each other, and it gets very organic. And if you're on acid looking at this, we'd be tripping. Now, where do you get clock faces at the University of Colorado? <laughs> So at night, we'd get into our ninja hippie outfits and go get little ladders and unscrew pretty much all the clock faces out of the UMC building. <laughs> Didn't notice it for years, I think. And this is how we rolled. And that light show, funded by student money and budgets, ended up at the Fillmore West. It ended up in Winterland, a lot of light shows around. And it was born and raised in Boulder, and it was pretty cool. I have posters that say Steppenwolf, lights by spontaneity, stuff like that. How much did the dead make at that show? I called a guy named Danny Weiner, who's a friend of mine to this day, and my first agent I spoke to, and I said, Danny, I need the Grateful Dead. It was the first call I made when I got the budget. I said, it's got to be the dead. Who books the dead? Tracked it down. It was a little agency called International Famous, but it was $2,500 flat. And like I say, it was two fifty dollars in advance, three fifty dollars We didn't even care about making money. It was just get the dead. The culmination of your concert promotion activities at CU was booking the first ever stadium show at Folsom Field, September 7th, 1969. Who was on the bill? The concert opened up with Kono Implosion, the Sons of Champlin, who actually were the band, I think, that played for two hours because we had space to fill in that Tim Harden couldn't enter the state, apparently, because of warrants. And then the original Steve Miller band, Buddy Guy, and... Country Joe and the Fish. A promoter in, in Philadelphia named Larry Maggot, a famous promoter there, helped me shape the show. I called him because some of the guys in Philly were my friends, that creative little group that came out. And they said, why don't you call Larry Maggot and ask him to help you book the show? And he said, it's a nice show, but it's mostly West Coast rock. You need some blues. So I called Buddy Guy, and that's kind of what was going on in those days. We were talking to each other, helping each other, creating shows. Great time. Eddie Crowder, I believe, was the athletic director. And we were the last thing he wanted to see in his stadium. This was common in the West. I encountered the same thing when we did Van Halen and the Doobie Brothers at Oklahoma University. But there was money in it. So Eddie Crowder begrudgingly let this thing happen. And we didn't do a very good job of putting moisture-resistant material under the porta potties <laughs> So that happened, and it wasn't a huge success. We also didn't quite have enough, so there was a bit of overflow. <laughs> we didn't make him happy, and there was a little furor over that. Back in those days, we didn't worry about people breaking in. It was love, peace, and good weed. It was just what was going on. And so the security buttons to identify the security force was a little black and white button I designed that said life force, and we put them on a bunch of people and said, you got security. That was the end of it. There weren't the problems that would come later. It's pre-Altamont. It was pre let's say, harder drug epidemics occurring in the community. It was an amazing, peaceful event. I think there was like over 10,000 people. It wasn't tens of thousands. That came later. I think it was six bucks to get in. It was eight-hour show. It was an epic groundbreaker. There's been a lot of shows at that stadium since then, but that was the initial. The modern concert business, a $10 billion industry, you remember that sense Not, of intimacy and rarity. 
uh, that community you allude to with fans and bands, the venue, the music, the reefer. Concerts were also one of the only ways a fan could see a band at the time. Rock acts hardly ever got on TV, so there was a mystery. When they came to town, that was your shot to see them, your heroes. There was nothing like that going on, certainly not in Boulder. Barry was just getting cooking with Feline in Denver. The Denver Pop Festival with Hendrix happened that summer, 69. You know, Woodstock was the seminal event that spawned a lot of this stuff. And so, yes, what I look back on now is an ability to bring it in, to make the calls, to get the budget, to make it happen, and I'll give myself a pat on the back for that. give a nod to the bands of the time. This was a different model from bands of the 60s trotting out their hits and getting off the stage. This was a whole new level of extended musicianship and the corresponding awe from the audience seeing these guys play. What's come up for me is when I think about, for instance, the Jefferson Starship at the Fieldhouse with Quicksilver Messenger Service, I think was the opening band. And these were core, seminal, San Francisco-based bands. Never would have gotten here, but for the idea, we thought, wait, we could do a show in the Fieldhouse. And I think that was the first rock show, if not show, period, in the Fieldhouse. It was sloppy, because it was just open seating, but we put down the plywood with the plastic <laughs> and then put the stage in. We had learned that one. You're a quick study, Marty. Yeah, it's just it's how I roll. The people who I was with in and around those times were amazing. And without me realizing it at the time or acknowledging it at the time, they were all doing the go, Marty. You're doing great, go, Marty. Because I was opening doors for them, and I didn't even know it. And they were thrilled that this was going on because the spill-off with clothing, with ticket sales bringing people into stores, and the record center on the hill, and Brillig Works in Denver. And it was like a network all of a sudden around this music explosion that was happening nationally. I think it was basically me in Boulder and Barry in Denver, and it was a point where he noticed me, and I became competition, too. So a little context. Frank Barcelona was the name of the gentleman who set up a company dubbed Premier Talent. That was the first agency in America that focused exclusively on rock music. And his innovation was to link the promoters with other promoters eager to carve out scenes in their own towns, like Bill Graham in San Francisco, Larry Megat in Philadelphia. Don Law in Boston, the Belkin Brothers in Cleveland, and in Denver, it was Barry Fay. In a joking way, those guys always said the system was based on the mafia, with each promoter awarded his own territory to control, kind of like a cartel. It was like the mob without the violence, someone once said, but it was just like the mob, period, right? <laughs> it was not a joke. <laughs> It was a reality, and there were people staking claims, and there were some tough guys. Bill Graham was a very tough guy. Barry Fay was somewhere between a very tough guy and a wannabe very tough guy, but he was scary when he needed to be. He understood that. And it was Bill Graham that told me years and years later, we were riding down an escalator at a convention, and he turned to me, with he was making notes or something, and he said, you know, Marty, you're way too nice a guy to be a promoter. And I really felt that because I was. That later caused me to exit stage left. There was a meeting in Appalachia of all the promoters at a hotel. All of those guys you mentioned, 
Joel Brandis was there, Denver Barry was there, I was there, Bill Graham, and they were there to discuss how to deal with Concerts West. It was almost like someone was waiting for the dawn of the music industry to say, put out a hit on those Concert West guys because they're messing up our business, they're invading our territory. And it was very much like that. I'm not sure everything got done. I used to call it the Korea meeting because it was a lot of talking and nothing ever happened. But <laughs> it was an interesting scene given the players. So these promoters weren't above squeezing out competition within their territories. You they weren't Denver. above putting a 357 on the desk when you were chatting with them. As a result of your successes in Boulder, Faye couldn't help but notice. And so since he had done all the shows in Denver and was the guy, he got in touch with you. I wasn't doing enough shows, certainly not making much money from doing them. I was having a great time. And I think he offered me a gig. He said, why don't you come? and help me run this shows. And in those days, Feline was a very small deal, and he assigned to me all of the production, so a band would come into town and I would get their rider, and I would make sure all the needs were met with lighting, staging, power. I'd deal with the hall, deal with the unions, and make sure that whatever was needed for the band was met. And it was very simple in those days. Van Halen hadn't declared they wanted M&Ms with no brown M&Ms yet, stuff like that. Bands would come to town in those days. There was no sound system in the semi-tractor trailer. There was no lighting rig in the other tractor trailer. I can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answer that you want me to. I remember Fleetwood Mac, Savoy Brown, and I'm pretty sure 10 years after came to town. They all played 45 minutes. I don't think they really cared who played first, second, or third. We rented gear, and there was no one traveling with the band because they couldn't afford to do the lights. So the local person would do the lights, and I didn't have a clue. And then there were the spotlights. How do you make the spotlights do the right thing at the right moment? I'm just a Jew boy from the projects in the Bronx. I don't know this. I think it was the Moody Blues were on stage. I didn't know what to do with the lights. So I handed this guy the headset. I said, here, you call the lights. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't know how to call lights. You know their music. He said, okay, I'll try. And he did, because he had a much better shot at getting it right than I did. And I think he enjoyed the moment. He was a sweetheart. And I watched and listened to what he did. And I came to understand what was required. And I eventually became very, very good at it. I would have six or eight spotlights, and I'd have to tell them each what to do how big to be, whether it was a fade or a bump in, which means an abrupt in or out, stand by to black out all spots, and then I'd give them a color. It would sound like one, two, four, and six, frame three on six, spots three and four, I want a slow fade in frame four, stand by, I'm gonna give you a slow call, and go, stuff like that. And this went on all night long in rapid succession all through every song, and then you'd be running a board at the same time. It became part of the show in terms of the creative aspect. And when the band was rocking and I had my act together and was making the moves and working with light and shape and color, I felt as close as I could ever be to being part of the performance without being on that stage because my job was to make them look phenomenal. You were known around town because you were the voice of Feline and your own shows. People on the radio heard every show billed as Feline Presents or Marty Wolf Presents. On the side, you ran an advertising agency doing voiceovers, radio spots. Somewhere about 1970, I was beginning to work for Feline 
and I asked my dad to send me $1,500 to help me fund what we had as an idea, which was to create an advertising agency called Lotus. And my buddy Chaz Barber was a graphic designer and an artist who did a lot of the posters in connection with the work we were doing. And I started learning by necessity how to do voiceovers on radio spots. So KLZ, there was a salesman there who used to let me sneak into their studio to play records and do voiceovers and change the levels. And I began doing the commercials for my own concerts locally to give to the stations where I was spending money to promote them. And then certain people approached me because I seemed to have this voice they liked. And so I'd buy a block of time. You could buy an hour worth of spots, like 61-minute spots for a bulk rate. And then I could mark that up and sell my clients better rates than they could get, but more than I was paying and make some money on the actual resale of the spot time and charge them for the voiceover. And I could make a living that way. So Chaz did the graphics, I did some voiceovers, and at the same time, Barry would have me go out on the stage in between acts at the Denver Coliseum after the opening band and talk about the shows coming to town. It was the audience you wanted to buy the tickets for the next show sitting right there. They're probably half whacked and they're all listening and they're having a really good time and you got to announce. And I understood the drama. I like accentuating drama. So lean upon him gently And don't call on him to save You allude to all the great English bands of the time. Jethro Tull, 10 years after, Fleetwood Mac, Savoy Brown, Joe Cocker, and The Who. You did two memorable shows with Tull. <laughs> One was at Mammoth Gardens. So there was a point in time where a venue called Mammoth Gardens opened, and it was a former roller skating rink, I believe, that a guy named Stuart Green from New York or New Jersey came and he had some money, and he wanted to open up a big ballroom in Denver. And the first band was Jethro Tull. In a small room like that, a couple of thousand people, bands could really tear it up because it was intimate. It was riveting. You could see nuances. You could see facial expressions. You could see spit flying. Cool. Part of the deal. During Jethro Tull's performance, that very first night, right in the middle of their set, someone got stabbed with a knife in the kitchen. There was a kitchen and food court off to the right, but there was a murder, a stabbing during that first concert. The band never stopped playing. The cops came. It was horrible. I was up in the lighting booth, which was hung from the ceiling in front and in the middle of the room, so I didn't have a view. I just knew something was going on. I heard what was going on because I was connected on the headset. But there was, needless to say, a very strange vibe. A year later, they were one of the main acts when Red Rocks got to open up again. I think there had been a moratorium, and Barry finally got into Red Rocks. And during the Jethro Tull performance, apparently there were still people trying to get into this sold-out event, and there were a lot of police on horseback. And something happened where some of the police on horseback were assaulted by some of the crowd. And there was a confrontation. Who knows who started it? It ended with tear gassing over the back of the arena into the sold-out 9,000-seat venue. And I got to go on stage again and saying stuff like, if you have any towels, wet them and put them over your face. If you have any children, go to the mixing console and bring them down to the stage through the tunnel. Just stuff you never expect to be talking about at a rock show. I remember Terry Ellis was running around frantically. He was Jethro Tull's manager. 
and he was so excited and crazy, he turned and slammed his face right into a skid or something that was on the side of the stage. And it was chaotic, and we ended up having to get the band off the stage and to safety, and the concert went down, and that closed Red Rocks to concerts for a while. Mm-hmm. Five years. Who they played mm. Mammoth Gardens. You remember that show? <laughs> yeah, that still stands out as the best single headliner performance I've ever gotten to witness. And again, this was still bands coming to town with no production. In other words, there was no lighting guy with these bands. So they would play Mammoth Gardens. I'd be up in the booth and they'd say, Why don't you do the show? And I did Santana, and I did The Who, and I did Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I got to do the lighting, which was as close to I ever got being part of the show. And that night, they performed Tommy for the first time. It was their Tommy tour. And, uh, God, I don't know how to describe it. It ruined us for the rest of our lives, basically. Yeah. It was never yeah. going to be My talked. marriages weren't good after that. None of it. <laughs> There were also relationships with managers and agents for the Rolling Stones, Elton John, Cat Stevens, James Taylor. Santana did an opening set for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young at the Denver Coliseum. And that was the best opening act performance by far that I've ever witnessed from the first percussion downbeat to the end of the set. They tore it up like the Who tore it up. That was the same fierce energy. The rhythm, the whole thing that was going on blew my mind. I was exposed to a lot of music by then, so to blow Marty's mind, you had to really kind of be killing it. And I just went, wow. I want to put this band on every opening act I can because they're going to be monsters. It was just obvious. And the second part of that show was phenomenal because he had Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. They came out and they played an hour of acoustic, just the four of them. And it was incredibly beautiful. And then they all stood up, turned around, and bowed down to the curtain on the stage behind them, which then parted production value. And all of their electric stuff rolled out towards them on this giant riser. And then they proceeded to play an hour and something electric set. Totally one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It's like the ultimate hors d'oeuvre and then the most satisfying entree. You mentioned Terry Ellis, Jethro Tull's manager. We (laughs) should take a sidebar here because years later, Terry offered a recording contract to an artist you were managing, Max Gronenthal, known as Max Carl for a time. Max had been the singer in a band called Energy with Tommy Bowen here in Colorado before Tommy went solo. Great, great singer. He's now the singer in Grand Funk Railroad. He had a big hit called Second Chance with 38 Special. Max and I got together, and I remember it clearly because it was the night Elvis Presley died, and we were sitting in a ballroom that had a stand-up piano, and I said, Max, why don't you play me some songs? 
Max sat down and started playing and singing at the piano, and he blew me away. And I had a little ghetto blaster with a nice microphone. And I ended up getting Max a solo deal with Chrysalis Records with Terry Ellis, whose smashing scar from the night he ran into that wall at Red Rocks had healed. And there was a connection there and a relationship. Terry signed Max, and we did the Max Gornenthal record, and it was great. Bayline was expanding into other markets. You got involved in producing shows in Salt Lake City, St. Louis, Phoenix, Houston. You presented, Barry, with the idea of becoming the promoter in secondary markets like Oklahoma City, Lincoln, Omaha, Tulsa, Amarillo, El Paso. He suggested that you team up with Joel Brandis, who had managed Sugarloaf here in town. You came up with a most excellent name. Yes, Great Western Productions. Generic killer. Sounds big, right? And it sounds organic. And it was perfect. Again, I realized I might make more money and that Barry was promoting the major markets but ignoring a lot of secondary markets. And I thought, why wouldn't exactly what he's doing work in these other markets, except he doesn't have the time or the inclination, and maybe the numbers aren't there. However, the numbers were there because you could still book ZZ Top in Abilene for 10 grand flat have $5,000 in expenses, and gross 30000 Do the math. I presented Barry with an idea. Barry felt that I could probably use some help booking. I knew some agents that I had booked with, but I didn't have a relationship. Joel was booking a lot of clubs, so he had a lot of relationships with the club arm of all these different music agencies on the East and West Coast. He paired us up, so Barry was the money. Joel was mostly doing booking, and he would do the active promotion on half the venues and cover the dates, and I would do all of the production and dealing with the band and the quality of the show. And it worked well. We grossed a million dollars in the first year. The problem was Joel was ambitious to a fault, and we would book a Friday and Saturday night, prime nights of the week with a really good band, a really good venue. We knew we were going to sell out and make money. And he would see where he could route the band on the Sunday or the Thursday before or both. And I was guilty of this, too. I'm not putting it all on him, although it was his forte. So we'd end up booking weaker dates in the mix. And those weaker dates ended up eating all of our profits. They were sometimes losers. And so at the end of the year, we grossed a million dollars, and we really didn't make much money. And when I looked at the numbers, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. We split up. I took my bands, the Dead, the Doobie Brothers, and some other relationships. And the problem was, I then became the enemy of Barry Fay. There were threats. Barry Fay taught me a tremendous amount of things. He showed me how to be a great promoter. He showed me how to be strong, and he also showed me a lot of things not to do. That's the best description I can give. I think he was historically huge for the state of Colorado and Colorado music and the surrounding areas, too. But he had some problems, and they manifested a lot in his relationships.
At this point, the Doobie Brothers asked you to go out on the road with them and be their producer, promoter, lighting and stage designer, just overseeing the quality of their presentation. They funded a lighting company exclusive to them, and you were at every show. They were doing their first headline tour, the Doobies. They had graduated from Listen to the Music was a big hit. They had played all the markets for opening acts as $500 a night, and they were ready to become the headliner, which was the growth spurt you hoped for. And that was the evolution of what was going on in that time. It went so well. They got such a positive response that they asked me, what would it take for me to be on the road with them all the time doing that? And could they give me some money to start a lighting company? So they gave me, I think, 15 grand to go out and buy a small rig. I think it was 60 instruments at that point. And I designed the aluminum quick up, quick down scaffolding thing. And we went on their first headline tour of the United States, a big tour, 120 dates. And it was kind of like I was there, Bill Graham. That's the best analogy I can find because he was a concert promoter who paid detail attention to production value. He was the guy who set the stage for production value of concerts in this country. And so I went and did that, and it was great. It was like Peter Pan with weed and making money, and it's awesome. <laughs> Let's address the pyrotechnical element of this. Ah, you were uh, blowing is, stuff up. Is a pioneer ask, of sorts. Ask any of my wives. Conducting experiments on the road, if you will. It should be noted that the lighting rig was stored here in Boulder. You got to remain in Boulder. We were a Boulder-based lighting company that made noise all over the world. <laughs> oh, wow, was not that great? We would have pyrotechnics in the show. Anyone who's ever seen a Doobie Brothers show knows that my favorite part was to blow up the stage at the end. It was festive. I once did Pink Floyd at the Memorial Music Hall in Kansas City. Arthur Max was their lighting designer, stage producer, and I watched him intently, and they had these big traditional old silver garbage can with the big lid on it. It looks like a 50-gallon drum almost size. And he had flash powder, basically bombs, in three of these. And at a certain point in the Pink Floyd show, I watched some guy go backstage and take the lid off, and they said, stand back. And I went, this is going to be good. And boom, these three garbage cans, flash powder, blinding light, and the audience went, wow. And I thought, this is how you get quaalude freaks to jump up in the air. I get it. Okay, this is good. I'll use this. So I incorporated that into the Doobies show. And from time to time, we'd be building and gearing up in a warehouse just on the other side of 28th Street. So one night, we're practicing. You know, you don't want to try out pyrotechnics on the band during the show. I once set the drummer on fire. It wasn't a good look. So we're trying out pyrotechnics. And we're blowing stuff up. I had a couple of guys who really wanted to see what the tolerance of some of the containers we used would be, which means you had to try to break them. And so a police cruiser cruises up because he's heard noise about some explosions in the factory area. And he rolls up and he goes, okay, what's going on? And I walk over because I'm good with police. I've done a lot of security concerts. And I go, hey, Doobie Brothers, we're just trying this stuff out. Here, check this out. And how you doing? And gets on his radio. It's... <laughs> Okay, uh, this is uh, ten twelve. just checking back. No biggie, it's just the Doobie Brothers trying some stuff out. Boom, boom. And that was how this cruiser connected to the head guy at the police station, letting him know, it's just the Doobies, they're blowing stuff up. No biggie, it's okay, next. Uh, Phil Basile, uh, sweetheart, was the tour manager, and he was a friend of Pat's for the Doobie Brothers. And we found that there was all kinds of things you could do with explosives. There were things called squibs. A squib was a little tiny, half the size of your pinky fingernail, flash powder covered with some plastic material to contain the flash powder. 
My forte was blowing the hubcaps off of the car next to me. <laughs> anyway, I pull up right next to Phil on the freeway. He doesn't know what's going on. We're doing 60, 65, and we get pretty close together, and I make the sign for roll down your window, and he rolls down the window. He goes, what? And I go, boom, and freaked out. He swerves. The hubcaps come <laughs> flying off, and he tried to effing kill me that day. He came after me. He was very upset. I don't know why. <laughs> Did I mention the time at the Chicago Amphitheater when I picked up Bill Champlin? He was in his rental car. We were playing around. I got into a forklift and picked up his rental car with him in it <laughs> and raised him off the ground quite high, and he lost it. And he's been so ginger and delicate with me ever since. Every time he sees me, he's got this, like, slowly moving back thing. Kind of cool. You're the Dale Carnegie of rock and roll. Right? You know, Winning friends, influencing You people. have to choose your victims, though, because you don't <laughs> want too much retaliation. After your stint with the Doobies, you created and managed a couple of bands, Stone Fury, which led into another group, Kingdom Come, mm. which had some success in the heavy metal world. Kingdom Come was a band that I named. And that band ended up shipping 610,000 units out of the gate, and no one knew who they were or where they were from. It was that hot. We were the number three AOR track, strangely, to Van Halen, Hot for Teacher, and the Tall Cool One by Robert Plant. And then we were the number three record in the country at the end of the year. We debuted in stadiums and crashed and burned at the end in clubs. Fabulous. So to put a capper on this to a degree, rock and roll became big business eventually, losing its innocence. Now there's a national touring system. It's uniform. None of the regionalism or personal touch of you early promoters. The consolidation of the industry is ballooned to where now Live Nation and AEG have a stranglehold on the business. It's just so different. There's a distance between the fans and the stars, ticket prices. That's kind of bittersweet, I would think. It's like my life, as I describe it in my recovery area, which was necessary at a point, is it was a lot of fun, and it was fun with problems. At the end, at least in my case, it was just problems. For me, Graham said, you're too nice a guy to be a concert promoter. I tried management, and the experience with Kingdom Come was so intense for me, it culminated in a part of my life where I had to make some serious changes. And so I'm grateful that it brought me to that point because certain changes only occur when sufficient pain has been infused. Marty, what's your favorite musician's joke? What's the ideal weight for a concert promoter? I don't know, Marty. About two and a half pounds, including the urn. <laughs> Very good. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O Music. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience 
to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.